Hello and welcome to the For the Win podcast. I'm Ted Berg, live from Camelback Ranch in Glendale, Arizona, which is the source of some of the background noises here, which I want to apologize for in advance, but I'm joined on the line by my producer, Hemel Javeri. Hemel, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Ted? I'm doing well. I want to get to questions in a moment, but first, I've got a pretty exciting interview. Yeah, I, I want to hear more about this interview. We'll talk more when it's done, but let's play it first. Joined now by Tabitha Soren, who a lot of us remember bringing us, I think for me at least, about half of the news I took in for most of my childhood and teenage years, but now uh, has an, a beautiful book out called Fantasy Life. Uh, tell me about the book. Fantasy Life is a photo book, an art book, that chronicles 21 baseball players from the moment they went to spring training through the minor leagues and for some of them into the major leagues. So I spent 15 years taking their picture because I wanted to see how the sport affected them, how they did in the sport, but also how they changed as a person. So the 2002 A's draft you have a personal connection to. That's true. The reason I met this particular draft class is because my husband wrote Moneyball, his name is Michael Lewis, and he uh, is very good friends with Billy Bean, the GM of the A's, and so we were invited to spring training, and that's how I had such close access. Where did you get the idea to follow them throughout their careers, and then for some guys, even into retirement beyond? Well, I thought, the pic I thought the project was going to be about taking pictures of their faces and bodies over time, but I lost interest in that and became more interested in the fact that everyone around me was such a fanatic about baseball, and I wasn't. So I, I guess I was trying to understand the culture that I was part of as, as a result of pursuing this project. And um, once I turned baseball into a metaphor for the American dream, I became much more interested in the, you know, the social commentary that the game provides. What did you learn out of it? Well, I don't think I invented these ideas, but I do, did try to get the pictures to illuminate them and explore them a little more deeply. I think that our culture is a very striving culture. I think that we assume that it's natural to want to be first and want to be the best. And I think baseball really emphasizes that because the players are spread out all over the field. It's not like football and uh, even basketball where they're all sort of jumbled up. So if you make a mistake or do something great, it's really, really noticed in baseball. And so that individual culture uh, the primacy of the individual over the community, I think, is something that's very American. It's not Japanese, it's not Indian, it's certainly not Australian. So um, I guess I wanted to explore our worship of that. Are all these fans living vicariously through the gladiators on the field? I mean, that's how sports had always been explained to me in the past. But I wanted to get in a little more uh, deeply than that, in, in, in an emotional way, sort of you know, what's the downside of assuming you're going to be a major league player? And for all of us, what is the downside for having such a high expectation that you're not going to have a meaningful life unless you reach it? I mean, it, it, it cuts down your, um, your odds and your chances, and I think your satisfaction as a human being to live that way. Something I notice a lot around spring is that sort of there's people think of playing professional baseball as such an amazing dream job type thing and and for some guys obviously it is but 
there is a, a sad aspect to it, you know, and you mentioned, you know, wanting to be the best, and, and these are guys, everyone who's drafted came out of high school or college, the best player in their town, and the, you know, the best player anyone Local in, hero. Yeah, right, and then they get to the minor leagues and they start seeing some challenges, and it's a, it's a hard lifestyle. Did you, did you, were you surprised? Yeah, the, life, minor, the minor league lifestyle actually reminded me a lot of all my friends in independent bands or college radio bands or whatever they're called at this point, the people who have record deals, but, um, you know, not, they, they're living out of vans and sleeping on other people's floors, and um, sure, the girls like them, but the, you know, it's kind of a hand-to-mouth existence. There's nothing glamorous about being in a rock band for a certain, for most people. And then there are those few that, you know, make it and everyone um, assumes that that's the life that you want. So even when you get the money, though, in baseball, that doesn't mean life is easy. Nick Swisher got paid $56 million when he signed with the Indians uh, over five years, but he took up the entire payroll of that team and then his knee blew out. So he's sitting there in the dugout with all these people who are not being paid as much as him and he's not playing. So what kind of feeling do you think that has day in and day out on him? Yes, I'm not trying to get people to feel sorry for somebody who made millions of dollars in a game, but I'm I just saying... It's okay, I think it's okay to feel sorry for someone, right? We uh, all have our own <laughs> set I mean, of everybody challenges. says, it's like, oh, God, he made bank, you know? That's ridiculous. But, I mean, that's not something Nick told me. That's just something I someone, noticed. Having met him, he's not someone who seems like he's seeking pity. No, not at all. So he's a good, you know, he's a... I'm just saying things like that happen, that it doesn't... Money and fame don't equal happiness. We've been told that a zillion times, and yet we still have these people, you know, exploiting their own lives to be on reality TV. It's just amazing to me. It doesn't, there was no point in me doing a, a book about the fact that that it doesn't make a happy life. But certainly the minor league lifestyle is definitely not something that um, anybody would want. It's spring training. I mean, often there's three guys to a motel room and one guy, you know, they rotate who sleeps on the cot that night. How you're supposed to get up the next day and play your best and get in the lineup each night is beyond me. Well, and you went to, you went and took photos of the Stockton Ports as mm -hmm. well in 2014 in the book. Uh, what brought you to that team and Again, what did you see there? Well, I live in the Bay Area, so that was most of their games were in driving distance. I mm -hmm. didn't go to like Bakersville or when when they were um, playing at the Modesto team or some of the teams a couple hours away from my house. I would go, and I needed to go over and over and over again because when I was shooting the tin types, they were so hard, and I kept. Um, there, I was using a very difficult process that most of the time they did not come out. So I needed to be able to go the next day and the next day, and so I needed a team close to me. And um, because they were at that time an A's affiliate, Billy Bean set me up with Ryan Christensen, who was here earlier, and um, they just let me in the dugout. I kept to myself. I didn't get in any trouble. I didn't date any of the players. <laughs> you know, I just like followed the rules did my work and um, and they kind of enjoyed it after a while because minor league life can be pretty boring day in and day out and it's a haul, it's a real slog of a season. There's an incredible photo in the book of uh, I think it's four guys sitting on the bench and the you know you can sort of see the top of the dugout and on top of the dugout the the mascot is dancing and he looks so cheerful and silly like a minor league mascot and all four guys just look tired and bored and <laughs> sad. It's such a good, it's a, I'm so glad you like that image. That was one of the last images we put in the book. 
Um, I to wasn't, me, that's like that is the minor leagues. Yeah. Well, I've had I had that vantage point so often, and I could not get the picture right. It. I mean, I started taking that particular picture in 2003, and I didn't get it till 2014. That's that says something about my abilities. But like that vantage point of the frame just being cut in half by the top of the dugout, and there's always something going on on top, whether it's fans trying to get autographs or. You know, in the minor leagues, there's the uh, electric guitar contests and just crazy wild stuff. And then underneath the dugout, they are wiped out, bored, or, you know, playing with um, those seeds that they eat. Sunflower seeds. Sunflower seeds, yes, because they're not allowed to chew tobacco, so it's a lot of sunflower seeds. They build statues out of them. They, you know, it's kind of ridiculous. So the mascot, I, I mean, there was this one picture that I, I actually gave up as a human being because I walked in, it was in Albuquerque, it was incredibly hot, you know, 110 or something, and there's a guy in one of those mascot outfits, and he had his head off on the couch, he's drenched in sweat, and he's like, sucking on this giant big gulp, like trying to, you know, focus his eyes. And it was the most beautiful shot of just depressing mascot. <laughs> but I couldn't, I felt like by taking it, it was humiliating in some way. So I didn't. But I remember it in my mind. Did you worry that the players behaved differently knowing that you were there? I, they didn't care enough. No, okay. I didn't worry about them behaving differently because I was there. I mean, there were a couple of guys who were kind of jerky. There was one guy in particular who was jerky, and I think he was a little nicer when I was around, but he was still jerky to me, too. Okay. I don't have as many pictures of him as a result. Um, and there, was a, there were a couple guys who were not as comfortable in their own skin, so I just tried to tread lightly if I was... You know, even now, a major league player who I have pictures of, um, I was doing a talk and he was going to come and so were some of the other major league players and he said just because he's a rookie, he said don't show a lot of pictures of me, just one or two because I'll get teased relentlessly. You know, there's these sensitivities of this, you know, this clubhouse frat attitude that I don't think most people are aware of. This guy is like hitting home runs all the time for a major league team. Who, wh why does he care? But if he's a rookie, he can't have he, his photos yeah, up. Yeah, he cannot have his photos up. And I wouldn't have known that, and he knows I wouldn't have known that, so... Can't touch the, the clubhouse the music system. Can't, there's a lot of rules. Absolutely, I, you know all of them. I don't know any of them. And even one of my coach, one of my guys who's a coach now, I went to batting practice the other day last weekend to take his picture in his new job, and he said, "Could you please take pictures of the other coaches as well? Because I will never live this down." Yeah. No problem. That's what digital's for. Take a lot of pictures you're never going to use. Uh, well, tell us a little bit about uh, your, trans your transition into photography, because I think uh, a lot of people of my generation remember you as one of the faces of MTV News, and now, you know, s sort of a very different career. It does seem like a very different career to a lot of people, but I actually think that if they unpacked it a bit, they wouldn't think that. Because when I was working on television, yes, I was on TV, but I, was, I got there because I knew how to produce and I knew how to write <clears throat> and I knew how to work the camera. Then my first job hellishly made me shoot my own stuff, do my own audio, shoot my own stand-ups. All this stuff that's great training, but is really hard. So um, I knew how to compose a shot and I was working at 30 frames a second. Now I'm just doing one frame at a time. So to me, it just seems like more 
more focused, more contemplative, more uh, strategic. I'm not chasing after somebody else's story. I'm trying to express something myself. Um, and that works better with motherhood. Being on planes all the time and being called at the last minute to do this or that just does not work with young kids. My kids are older now. Now they wouldn't care. But I'm already on this path. So, and I'm happy here. I feel like I have something to say. Tell, tell me about the, the new book that's coming out or the new project. My new project is called Surface Tension. and It's, it's a, not a book yet. It's not a book yet. But you never know. Um, right now it's just going to be an exhibition and I'm debuting it in New York in April at an art fair called APAD. It's the biggest photography fair in the country and it is pictures of fingerprints and the grime that we normally wipe off on our phone uh, to try to see past. These are sort of emphasizing and highlighting those paths that we make with our fingertips and basically I'm trying to address how technology has affected the way we think, the way we interact with each other, and the way we interact with photography. Last question, just because I I'm, can't think of anything else. You've interviewed Yasser Arafat, among others. Are you judging me right now for, for a lack no, of interview? No, gosh, skills? no. All it right. would never occur to me. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me about Tupac. That's usually people's cash-out question. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know what to ask about Tupac. No, I mean, no, no. Do, just, do I mean, people are like, you interviewed him. <laughs> yep. <laughs> How was he? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he was exactly what you saw on TV. That was the extent of our entire relationship. Tabitha, thank you so much. No problem. Thanks for having me. So, Hemel, that was Tabitha Soren, someone I think that we both probably watched bring us the news a whole lot when we were young. I'm so excited that you got to talk to Tabitha Soren, and her story is so interesting to me. I had, I had no idea that she was a sports photographer. Yeah, it, it was a surprise to me as well. I hadn't really heard of it, but it's a cool thing. She followed, like, like she said in the interview, she followed a bunch of members from the 2002 A's draft, which was the famous mm -hmm. Moneyball, Moneyball draft that her husband, Michael Lewis, wrote about. And uh, she followed them sort of throughout their minor league and major league careers and then into retirement. Uh, also, I want to note just that, and I, I sort of mentioned it at the end of the interview, that I have a weird thing where I... I don't get nervous talking to people I have met in this field since I've been in it, but anyone who was famous before, like 10 years ago, when I became a journalist for the first time, I get, like, I can't handle it. It was just like, and especially with, with someone like that whose background is in reporting, all I could mm -hmm. think about was, oh no, like this Tabitha Soren, think I suck at this. But I, you know, I think that she is, um, I think for me and for, I don't want to say like people of our age, but like maybe for our generation, like who were kind of growing up with MTV News as the only place to get um, news that wasn't like mainstream media news, right? Like, do, do you remember that? I mean, like when for you, me it was more like that was the way I got the news because I was watching MTV and I wasn't watching the news. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I mean that, so she was just like that first wave of news that young people were getting outside of newspapers and network TV so she was incredibly cool incredibly with it and just like you know like your really cool older sister that or your friend's older sister that you just wanted to hang out with um, and I still feel that way about her whereas, so I, I would very much understand that you would be nervous talking to her whereas Kurt Loder was like your woke uncle yes <laughs> um, well anyway we've got a bunch of questions here and I, I I want to kind of keep this quick because of the, all the noise here and also because I'm 
I'm in the press box and probably being a little bit rude, and I feel bad for people who are and will be sitting near me. Um, It'll but, be uh, rapid fire. We'll yeah, do it rapid fire. Let's get into it. So this one, uh, we'll start with our, our man Charles Curtis, who's our co-worker, mm -hmm. and he says, and, and so we, we put out a, a uh, bracket of TV show themes this week uh, that, you know, for March Madness and, and have had readers vote on the best TV show themes. But the process of cutting it down to 32, we thought that 64 would be unwieldy, but we cut it down to 32, and Charles and Luke Curtin and I fought so much over just how to get it down to 32 and then how to seed it. So Charles wants to know which TV songs that got left off of our bracket do you absolutely love? You've seen the bracket. I've seen the bracket. I am having a hard time remembering all of them, uh, but I will say off the top of my head there's two. One which I'm not uh, embarrassed about, which is The X-Files. I, I think that's an amazing TV theme song, that's and I, should, I think it should have been on there. Yes. Okay, yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, that's pretty good. Um, the one that I am a little bit embarrassed about, but not embarrassed enough to omit it from this podcast, is that I loved Greatest American Hero as that TV theme song is like one of my absolute favorites, and I'm pissed that it didn't make it onto the onto the bracket. See, I don't actually, I don't remember that show. I don't think I really watched it. And that oh, was, really? That was one that a lot of people said, "Why wasn't this on yeah. there?" Why and wasn't it on there? I, so I don't know. So that would be on Charles or Luke for not mm -hmm. watching that also or not bringing it up. I I don't really know that show. And so I don't feel bad about leaving it out. Uh, I'm going to blame Charles. Luke doesn't have a great background in, like, 90s. Yeah, Luke is and, British. Yeah. Luke is super <laughs> British. So, he, I mean, Luke was really the problem when we were putting, like, Charles and I were basically on the same page most of the way. And Luke yeah, was he's like, all... no, you must love this Kim Possible, or, you know, whatever, all those different things. That's my Yeah, he, he really was advocating for Peaky Blinders to, yeah, to get on that ballot. Of course he was. <laughs> Um, I would say for me, the ones that I left that we left off that I were I was vying hard for uh, include the Fraggle Rock theme, which oh God. I just think is kind of a gem. I, I don't know. I mean, it was a that was a first of all, I think a good show, and also I'm I'm sort of uh, biased towards songs I have covered in various outlets, and that was one I of them. I knew you were gonna say that. I always just kind of liked it. Um, that's why Thundercats and the A-Team got in there. Those were two of my favorites as well. Uh, there were a bunch that I thought... I mean, I think that the opening theme of The Wire was really cool and how they switched artists every mm -hmm. year, and I, I thought that was cool, but I got I got talked down on that. So those would be the two I would think of. Yeah, I would say True Detective Season 1 obviously was so iconic for the 2000s bracket. It should have been on there. Um, Again, a show I didn't really watch. Uh, also, Firefly. I, I'm going with the, you know, beloved Firefly. I don't think a lot of Joss Whedon made it on there, so. Um, another one that, that you made me think of with the X-Files themes, with it really is iconic, is the, the Twilight Zone theme. Oh, um, yeah. Just because, and, and that, I think, was just an oversight on our part. It didn't yeah. come up in our conversation, but, like, that is the the music associated with weird creepiness now. And so, Did you guys do I Love Lucy? Is that I one? Lucy. I Love Lucy was in there. I believe it okay. lost in an upset in the first round. But mm -hmm. it, it was in there. Alright. Um, Alright, let's go on. We Good, got, question. Good got, question, Charles. Yeah. Um, this is a fun one from at Brian Needs a Nap who is just Brian on Twitter. And he wants to know, if you're put in charge of the NCAA tournament, what changes would you make for 2018? And I, do you have one? Do you know any changes you'd make to the NCAA tournament? Because I have one, but it's probably not in the spirit of Brian's question. Well, I do have one, and it dovetails nicely to a question that 
our old coworker colleague Nick Schwartz asked me over over GChat. He wanted to know why is March Madness called March Madness when it always runs into April? So. As a as a bone to Nick, I will say that the change I would make is that they just start it a little bit earlier so that it just finishes in March. Like, let's just wrap this thing up so that it really can just be March Madness. Yeah, so it's not March and, like, a little bit of April Madness. I would contend exactly. that the, the really mad part is now at the very beginning rounds when there's right. crazy, all sorts of crazy things happening, so many games going on. But, yeah, yeah. by that, I mean, the, the obvious one for me, and this feels like getting on my high horse, but... Uh, would be to pay the guys who are playing the basketball that everyone's watching and and tuning into and buying up advertising space around and uh, that you know teams and colleges and the NCAA are presumably reaping tons of money off and and you know every every guy on the court is uh, doing it for free. Some of them are doing it for scholarships, not all of them, but uh, and you know obviously I recognize the value of the scholarship and the value of. Uh, of a um, bachelor's degree, which many of them do get, but uh, there, I feel like it's pretty well exposed that the NCAA is kind of jobbing these guys. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a very, um, you know, maybe not in the spirit of the actual question, but it's a pretty legitimate beef. Um, yeah, I would say yeah. some sort of revenue sharing, right? Like if if you, it doesn't have to be that they get all of it, but maybe on a per-game basis, like if your team plays four games in the NCAA tournament, then you get, you know, whatever it is, one twentieth of the of the pot, because, or, you know, then the, the players split one twentieth of the pot. Because. I mean, just, I mean, especially when you just consider with the coaching salaries that these guys are making and the players don't get anything, it's, it's a long... It's a long thread. We don't need to unravel at the moment, but we I think we both agree that it is messed up. It's definitely messed up. Um, yeah. That's this, a good that's a good one. Uh, did you watch Lost? Did you see the show Lost? Did, was that have we talked about this? I we actually talked about it um, a couple of podcasts ago and I will say I watched the first episode and I watched the last episode oh, and great. that was that was my perfect window for Lost. I was like, cool, I feel like I watched everything. <laughs> yeah, our man at CTAR, Michael Donato, wants to know, uh, yeah. should I finish watching Lost? He only has one episode left. The last episode made me so angry that I would say, no, don't don't bother. <laughs> just don't even watch it. it I, you want to find out what happens, you're not going to find out what happens. So Wait, just... so... So you really do have to watch until the very last minute, right, to figure out what happens. But you know, because they so they answered a storyline. They they sort of solved the storyline that they only introduced in the last season, uh, mm -hmm. then when there was this like third alternate reality, and they they told mm -hmm. you what that was, but they didn't tell you all of like the billions of questions you had leading up to it. And right. so it was like it was a total cop out. They obviously had no plan. I am still bitter about it. Like I spent. I've, I've spoken about this on the show. I, I spent so much freaking time trying to figure out the secret yes. of what was happening on Lost, and there was no secret. They had no plan. They were just like, hey, let's put out a bunch of different mysteries, and we won't, we don't know how they're going to wind up because maybe we get canceled at some point. So let's just keep building these mysteries, and then, uh-oh, uh now the show's going to end. We really need to wrap this up. All right, well, screw it. Let's put in this whole other thing that no one really cares about. Yeah, Lost sounds like a terrible, terrible viewing experience. Um, it was that see, see, it was one of the greatest viewing experiences I ever had for like the first four seasons when you were so wrapped up in but, all of that. But then right, the, but the payoff see, was so unsatisfying. Well, that's like okay, so that just means that the payoff wasn't worth it. But 
that's my problem with any show that like st stretches it out so you're expecting a payoff at the end of like five seasons because that's never going to be worth it which is why I don't even get into there's a big central like any TV show that plugs like a big central mystery I'm like nope I don't I don't need to know about this I don't want to be manipulated in this particular way well and I've said this before I think all shows should be done the the British way which is yeah. sort of announcing at the beginning how long the show is going to be like we've got five yep. seasons we're going to make a five season show and I get that, like, the, the market sort of dictates how long you actually go, but I hate, I hate that they, yeah. that, you know, that they have these shows that take so long to sort of get where they're ultimately going. I think you should always have an end game in mind. I think that, be, yeah, I yeah. would make that my decree if I were in charge of television. To be fair, I think that is where TV is going. Not that we're talking, like, not that I'm a TV executive, but I feel like a lot of shows are, like, Netflix shows where it's like, okay, you've got... 12 episodes, and you may get renewed, you may not, so wrap it up. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I really don't, I, and I get that there's a it, there's a business aspect to it, but there's a lot of shows where it's like the first season is so good that I mm -hmm. wish that it would have just ended after the first season, and then, like, that's it. It's it's in this, mm -hmm. like, sort of neat package. You got 12 mm -hmm. episodes, and, and you found out what happened to this season's story arc. You don't have to come up with another one for the next year. So I'm trying to... I'm trying to think of a show that fits that, right? Like they just they got canceled after maybe two or three seasons, but the two or three seasons that they had were were like just perfect. And I wonder if there I can't think of anything off the top of my head. So I think there were only four seasons of Eastbound and Down. That's actually the show I, I think of when I think of a show that would have been perfect with only one season. But they did a really good job in the third and fourth seasons of sort of like wrapping up where Kenny Powers would go and, and how it's going to play out for him. Um, all right, maybe I'll have an answer to that next next podcast. Uh, what I, else you got? I've got ballpark announcements. Do you hear those? <laughs> I do. It's, it's that guy shouting for lemonade, you said? No, no, no. Well, so now it's the, now it's the PA who's making an announcement okay. about, like, don't throw objects onto the field and watch out for batted balls. Uh, this is one from from uh, I'm 2008 Hot, uh, who is at Derpy Mets on Twitter. And he says, this is a good one. Take turns pretending you're the president and name first month controversies you'd spark. And what do you think each other would spark? So what controversy would come up in your first month as the president? Oh, Jesus Christ. I'm not, you know what, I'm not even going to take a shot. Well, taking, at the answer... the taking the Lord's name in vain for one. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, taking the Lord's name in vain. You as president, one. you're toast. <laughs> Um, I'm not even going to answer this realistically because... Well, don't answer you know it realistically because you're, you you're really like, oh, we don't want to talk about policy. Yeah, we're, we don't want to talk about policy. Um, oh man, this is really hard and I wish that you had given me a heads up so I could think about I'm it. sorry, okay, so I'll go. I'll say... Okay, you go, yeah. I would be, and I, I think I've brought this up before, I want to be like the leisure time president and I would commission, I think I would commission someone to create like the best batting cage and the best mini golf courses and the best uh, like go-kart races and like all those fun things that I don't feel like anybody does enough and we all kind of enjoy and I would force them into public parks so everyone had access to them and they were fairly cheap and a good use of our, our tax dollar and I would like massively cut spending on a lot of dumb things and, and instead be like, hey, you know, like our military is not going to be quite where it used to be, but you know, we're going to have really dope mini golf and I feel like that might, that might bother some people. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty good. Um, but who wouldn't vote for the mini golf guy, right? Like, I'm uh, yeah, everybody loves running, the mini golf guy. I'm basically running on like the same platform as like every middle school president ever, being like, "We'll put soda in all the water fountains." It'll and, be pizza every day, not just on Fridays, guys. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's a great. That's a great middle school campaign as the pizza right? every day. Pizza every day. Uh, uh, I have a brief hot pizza take. That I, I would like you to share it. Um, so there's a place in Phoenix, and I went there, and, and I'm snobby about pizza as a New Yorker mm -hmm. and, a, and an Italian man and all of those things. And so I'm, I'm, and there is a famous pizza place in in Phoenix where I've been, and which is really good. But this is not that. I went to a place last night called Blaze Pizza, and it's notable to me because it's a pizza place that's set up like a Chipotle. So you basically mm. just they give you like you know, or they don't give it to you. They the, someone stands there at the end of the counter with. Of, like the beginning part of the pizza, just the dough flattened out on a little, uh, like a, yeah. a pizza peel, and then they right. walk they walk down the aisle with you and put all the toppings on that you want. Right. I don't understand why no one has done this on like a bigger scale. It just seems so smart that you can because because pizzas places at least in New York they always have like these are your custom options like you can have chicken ranch jalapeno or you can have buffalo chicken or you can have uh, all the meats or and you can't really you don't get a lot of customization options unless you're ordering like a full pie for multiple people but this was personal pies and you put on whatever you want and there's a bunch of things you might not think to put on until you're like whoa yeah roasted garlic throw that on there so that was dope and I recommend it heartily so we, we have those in the suburbs. Like I feel like they're actually more common, probably not common in New York City. Uh, I, I guess that's what it is. It's like in New York City, you either have like the local pizza yeah. place, you have some chains, you have like Papa John's, Domino's, etc. And then there's like the standard local place, and then we also have a ton of the dollar slice places. Uh, I'd, so my problem with with places like that is like is that the pizza then eventually just becomes overstuffed with too much. You know, like too many ingredients. Well, but that's on you. And that's on you. Well, yeah. Well, so, okay. If we're really getting into it, just very quickly, I will say that my sister will like put as much crap as she can on the pizza. So there's like the crust can't even hold it up. So you get like broccoli and artichoke. Like that's a salad. That is not a pizza. So okay. we have really strong opinions about that. Well, um, I'll tell your our... just tell your sister to dial it back a little bit. You know, I just try, try, oh, all man. those things on the pizza. I had a lot on my pizza. Ted, you really try good. talking to her. You right. try talking to her. <laughs> um, I think maybe I could talk some sense into her. Um, all right, wait. So you know what? Oh, the original question. Well, um, my first. your president. What, what would be? Well, he 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 also wanted us to guess what. I mean, well, I don't I don't know what you would do that. I well, I have guesses, but I don't. They're all things that would be like actual things that might. I know. People, so. I know, and so you know what? I'm just gonna go for it because I don't really care. I would throw open our borders. Like anybody who wants to come in can come in. Um, I mean, <laughs> which, the more the merrier, right? Like yeah, yeah. I here, literally. Uh, good for I, the economy, low-key good for the economy, at least that's what we learned in like fifth grade, and I feel like that doesn't come up a lot, was just like every wave of immigration turns out to be really good for the economy, and exactly. obviously that's like not something people talk about now. I know, and I, I mean, I'm sorry that I can't be like funny and lighthearted about it, but I would throw open our borders, and I'm pretty sure people would be really angry. I would also use my power like right away to invite 
every famous person that I'm a fan of to the White House, right? Like, yeah. I would be like, hey, Kate Middleton and Prince William, come on over. Like, I would make it, like, my mission for my first 100 days to see as many, like, famous celebrities as possible. Yeah, I mean, in terms of controversial stuff, like, I think I would definitely go, like, full Andrew Jackson with my White House party, like, my inauguration. Like, I know that, at least I've read that, that Jackson had, like, a giant wheel of cheese at his party. Yeah. Like, this is the only... Uh, enviable thing about Andrew Jackson's presidency, which was not a good thing, despite what we'll tell you. And Jackson basically committed genocide, but uh, that might be a too hot of a take for this. So, um, but he did have a big party before he did that. Yeah, um, um, yeah. So the big yeah. party, right. I would have a big party. It would be a throwdown. Um, and then, but then I wouldn't follow that by committing genocide. <laughs> Uh, that would not be my that would not be my policy. I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice guy. I don't like I don't like forcing people to move to Oklahoma while they all starve on the way. It's messed up. Um, it's not really that funny. Um, I mean, it's not really funny, but you're you know. You yeah, but I'm fine. absurd. But I'm fine. Um, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, there there would be. I mean, there would be. I would also, if we're if we're talking about controversy, I think I'm done with states. I don't really think we need states anymore. People are like, oh, that should be a states' rights issue. Why? Why should the state? Like, why? If I live in New York City, what do I have mm -hmm. in common with someone who lives in Schenectady or Poughkeepsie or whatever, where we need wow. to be represented by the same people? Like, right. why don't we separate it into smaller municipalities and then have those people represent us? So, like, maybe of, you know, we break it down into, like, every 200,000 people get their own congressperson, right? And then, like, the 200,000 people I live nearest to, we all have, like, we vote for our guy, and then that guy goes and represents us, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'm president by now, so it's not me, but I would like that to be me uh, in advance of that. But obviously, until I'm president, I can't shake up this whole system, but I feel like states are, like, low-key pretty dumb when you really think about it. Like, why? 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 Like, especially so many states are so diverse that we're like, well, why does, why do the people of um, so you, Kansas City no, have you're to actually, do with the people elsewhere in Missouri and Kansas? Uh, right. You're, but you're actually arguing the opposite. You want to go smaller than states. You don't even well, yeah, want to I mean, just I mean, throw I mean, it all I open. Think, I think we need to be representing local interests, right? I think that's like an important thing that the central government actually does is like we'll make sure that we're not forgetting about the people in this area or this area wherever, right? Like that's why we have representatives you in Congress and Senate. So I, I want that. I, I just don't think that we need to break it down by state because I, I don't feel like I have, I don't, like I don't feel a lot of, I feel like civic pride like i'm happy i'm a new yorker and i live in new york city and, I, and i'm happy i grew up on long island like all of those things are are things i'm cool with long island sort of takes a little while to get there because it has so little street cred but um you know whatever i'm good with it i don't really have like new york and new york's a beautiful state there's tons of great things there and and they invented buffalo wings but i don't have like state pride right like there's no nothing about me is like oh yeah hell yeah hell yeah Troy, well, new york hell yeah albany yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of understand that, but I was just, I would advocate that states are just completely separate now. Like, we, we don't even need the United States. Let's just have California be California. New York can just be New York. Virginia will just be Virginia. I don't, I don't want to just be New York. Like, I'm, I'm, I want to live in America, right? Like, that's fine by me, but, 
I I don't want I just don't want to have to like and like I feel like well, it, I feel like it's just a middleman. You've just created a middleman in all these state governments, and it made sense in like 1789 when you couldn't get the message to the state fast enough, right? And like so you needed the state to sort of govern itself. Yeah. But now you've got the internet. No, you're advocating for like the old. Greek method of city-states, right? They're hyper-local in some sense, but it's based on population. Uh, but anyway, it's a very complicated idea that we probably don't need to, to get into. Well, I mean, I'm good getting into it, but yeah, we should probably move on, because I've, <laughs> I've got a hard out at the end of this show. So, yeah. uh, a couple more. Um, okay. This is from Matt Reno Wallabout, who's asked us a few questions in the past. He says, what is the best, this is a tough one, and I wish I thought about this more before the show, but what is the best possible match between an athlete and the product or service they should endorse. Ugh. Why you know, I thought about this so a little bit. Mm, I'm not really sure I can think of something right off the top of my head, though. Um, Do you have anything? Well, like I feel like I feel like there's a lot of obvious ones in baseball, just because so many base, baseball guys are like like it should be like Wonder Bread presented by Buster Posey. You know, like, <laughs> but it would all it would. I think for a lot of baseball players, it would just be white bread. <laughs> Um, <laughs> not that they eat on. white bread, they're all eating, drinking protein shakes and everything. I'm just saying, like, I, I feel like it would be, white bread would be the perfect endorsement for a lot of white, for a lot of baseball players. Um, he, Reno Wallabout specifically asked, like, what would be a great product for Bartolo Colon to endorse? Um, I feel like a lot of people, that's like a, that's like a bait for me to come up with some food product or something, but what about just, like, Bartolo Colon? So you can okay. smell like Bartolo Cologne, which yeah, I feel like that's the fantastic. easiest. Just Bartolo Cologne's Cologne. It was just like Bartolo Cologne, and then they spelled Cologne like the French way, and it was like, <laughs> and like it was like Bartolo by Calvin Klein. Who I'm not going to come up cologne? with anything better than that. No. The, the no. actual Bartolo Cologne, or yeah. like a high fiber cereal, but uh, no, I think Bartolo Cologne. Bartolo Cologne, I th that's that's probably the best one. Yeah, yeah. I feel I feel like I, I wussed out on that answer because I just can't think of anything that wouldn't be, get me in trouble. What about like <laughs> Steph Curry's curry? Could he not sell his own curry brand? I mean, Steph and Aisha's curry's curries sounds like a like an endorsement deal waiting to happen. Uh, his last name is Curry. No. <laughs> That's a spicy take. Am I right? Huh? High five. High five. High five on the dad jokes. All right. Too. Um, we, we, so, um, at JJ underscore the underscore Jetson has a meta food question for us, which is, why do we only take one food question for podcasts? And I think you should handle that one. Well, what is it, JJ? Uh, Joe. His name is Joe. Joe. Joe, Joe, the, the answer to your question is that I'm sick of talking about food. Yeah. There's literally so many other things that I would like to talk about that don't involve food. So I think, Ted, you and I agree on a lot of things, uh, but food is probably where we, we differ the most. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I like talking about food, and I can talk about food all day, but I do feel like the food questions are often the same, like a variety of like the three same questions, which is like, what is your favorite sandwich? Is a hot dog a sandwich? And like, what would be your death row meal? And and that's that's so that's like a lot of the food questions we get. Oh. He also wants to know, and this one maybe does apply to you. He also wants to know, what is your best? He says, "quote Saved by the Taco Bell story." Um, uh, I can't think of a specific time that I've been rescued by Taco Bell, but I would say that when uh, and 
in the 2014 World Series, I found that basically very, very little is open at, in Kansas City by the time you get done with your work at the World Series because you're there until 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. every night. And Taco Bell, right near, right across the street from the K in Kansas City, was still open and serving me dinner basically every single night. So that would be it. It would be, otherwise I just would have gone hungry in Kansas City, which is like a, a big shame for a number of reasons. Uh, so my best story, and this is actually probably why we love Taco Bell as much as we do, but when we, okay, so some background for, for the answer to this question. I, I was born in India and I went to school in India for a little bit before my family moved to the US. And the way it works in India is that parents send their kids lunch in like little tiffins, right? They give it to a servant or a service and that guy will take a hot lunch to the kids at school. So that's how they used to do it in India. So when we came to America, wait, so yeah. Wait, so you get, I don't, I don't, so, wait, uh, go, go back. You're going to have to get more. Okay, so what happens is that when kids in India go to school, they don't take lunch with them. Parents give it to a, a delivery service, like the Tiffin guy, like T-I-F-F-I-N, and he will take it to the kid's school, and that's how you get your lunch. <clears throat> does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I just hit mute for a second because it got super loud in here, and I wanted uh, okay. to hear your story, so keep going. Okay, so that's how it works in India. So when we moved to America, and I was probably in first or second grade, and my parents were like trying to figure everything out and they were just like, oh crap, it doesn't work that way. Like the kids, you know, there's no like delivery service. Like kids take their lunch with them or they get a hot lunch at school. My dad would go to Taco Bell, get us food and then bring it to school for us. Like he didn't do it every day, but he did it like twice a week. So that's my best like saved by Taco Bell story is that my dad would just bring us Taco Bell because he didn't know what else to get us for lunch. That is adorable and <laughs> an extremely sweet Taco Bell story. That way tops yeah. just like, oh, well, I eat there a lot. That was my story. Yeah, my, it, we would just like wait. My sister and I would just wait outside for him, and he would be like, "Well, here's your burrito for the day." I'm like, "Thanks, Dad." Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, um, it's very sweet. I used to go home for lunch in elementary school, which was like a weird thing that to think about now that they would just let you walk home, like that. They oh my would just god! Let like third graders leave the campus of my elementary school, but like I used to just walk home, and and my dad worked from home, so like my dad would heat up a microwave pizza. And we would sit there and eat lunch. That was like most of my lunch experience in elementary school. Oh my god, that's that's so cool. I didn't know. Yeah, that sounds like something that kid that you would just never be allowed to do now. Yeah, and, and, and just was, turn them loose. It was weird. Like it was weird that I knew the how. Like I, 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 it's one of those things where it's like it, it made sense at the time because I didn't know any <laughs> different. But it's weird that I even knew to like get myself back to school in time. I don't know yeah. how I managed it. It wasn't like that short of a walk either. Um, so, sort of a strange thing thinking about. My sister and I have actually like, had conversations about this later. Like, why were we allowed to go home for school for, for lunch? But we did. Um, anyway, that that yeah, is really weird. The sound of brown eyed girl in the background probably means it's time for us to wrap up. I want to say before we go that, uh, that Tabitha Soren, our guest from the show, uh, is doing an. I saw her speak at the Phoenix Art Museum on Wednesday night. She's doing another event here in the Phoenix area on Sunday, March 19th. If you're, for whatever reason, in Phoenix, uh, very interesting stuff. You should definitely want to check out. She'll be at the Civic Center Library Auditorium in Scottsdale, Sunday, March 19th at 4.30 p.m. Hemel, thanks so much for joining us. The National Anthem is about to start, so I really need to go. All right, bye, Ted. Take care.